On board the Mir space station, a massive fire breaks out. Unable to see his hand in front of his face and with thick suffocating smoke building up fast, this U.S. astronaut searches desperately in the confusion for an oxygen mask. Knowing he's going to die, he yells out to his wife that he's not going to make it and that she must look after their son. I knew I couldn't go back. Your you just wife. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even Luck deeper. is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That I. was the turning point. Hi, I'm Phil Cogan. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast, where I talk to mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. People who take chances. Those who swerve off the predictable road, face their fears, and refuse to say no. Amazingly resilient people who are motivated and tenacious. Those who have said bucket and who epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. Astronaut Jerry Lininger has spent 143 days in space and logged the equivalent distance of more than 110 round trips to the moon. He spent five months on board the Russian space station Mir, but it's a miracle that Jerry, who was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal by NASA, is alive today after the terrifying events that happened just six weeks into his stay on a famously flammable space station orbiting Earth. So all hell is breaking loose and you're up in, in space. Take us into that moment, Jerry. You're how far above the Earth at this point? So we're about 250 miles above the Earth and uh, everything's going pretty well. Uh, sucking down some dehydrated borscht to tell my crewmates I have some work to do. Uh, fly off to a U.S. equipped module, pretty good equipment on there. Uh, that whole space station, you know, is about 13 years old, design life of three to five years. So it's a failing space station. Uh, but I get in the newer U.S. module. I'm up on the laptop recording some stuff. And then I hear the old blang, 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 you know, master alarm going off again. You know, master alarm means you're having a bad day in space. I've been up there for about a month and I've been hearing master alarms two or three a day. And so it's kind of funny. My pulse is not racing anything else i'm just kind of calmly looking at the computer saying okay it's still working haven't lost power almost subconsciously look around walls aren't tumbling i think okay we haven't lost attitude control must be the carbon dioxide scrubber you know just very 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 relaxed uh enter the data push off go to turn the corner uh to look at the caution warning panel uh but before i can get there vasily sableyev comes flying around the corner fast and I yell out, Seriosni, and he says, Da, Ochen, Bajar. Uh, I asked, is it serious? He said, yes, very, fire. Um, looked down the length of the module, sort of like a school bus, down at the end of the module, coming out of a uh, solid-fueled oxygen canister. It's supposed to be just an exothermic reaction, no flame involved. But instead, we've got a flame coming out two or three feet in length, blowtorch-like intensity, sparks flying off the end of it. Uh, looks like someone lit a box about 100 sparklers, uh, just, you know, sparks flying. Uh, look down at the hull of Mir. The hull is made of aluminum, protection from the vacuum of space, about that thick. Quickly realize that blowtorch points down. We're going to have rapid decompression as it pierces the hull, uh, quick suffocation. And in that moment, uh, you say, you know, this is it. Um, we either do everything right or we're not getting out of this situation. I can feel... My adrenaline pumping just hearing that story because I'm figuring that fire in space is about the worst thing you can face. There's actually three emergencies that we train for, immediate response, and fire's, you know, one of those three. 
Rapid decompression is the other one. As I mentioned, if that fire points down, we've got fire and rapid decompression. And the third major emergency you worry about in space is toxicity. And of course, we're burning, uh, literally melting metal. I mean, I'm seeing sparks flying off the end and molten metal just being splattered against the far bulkhead. So we've got toxic materials, we've got fire, and we've got the possibility of rapid decompression. So it is as bad as it gets cut off from mankind, you know, that, that impulse to call 911 doesn't work. Uh, get the heck out of here is actually uh, a thought I had that was a good thought, but we're cut off from our rescue vehicle by that huge flame. And you know, and a lot of people have been in tight situations know, at that point, you're telling yourself, you either stay calm or I'm dead. Well, we'll, we'll leave the story there and then we'll wrap it up at the, at the end. Um, Nice to see you back here on Earth. Thank you. It's good to be on the planet. What, what a planet we have. <laughs> yeah, what a planet we you have. Yeah, I just took a walk outside and there's hummingbirds all over and flowers and the diversity of life and, you know, how good we have it and how blessed we are and what a carefree life we have. Absolutely. And we don't even, you know, think about it. Yeah. And, you know, I always take a deep breath. You know, how good we have. We have oxygen here. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to make it. You don't have to worry about it rushing out in a rapid decompression, suffocating you and killing you. Um, You know, we're just blessed down here on the planet. It's interesting you should say that because when you you hear from any astronaut, they always say the same thing. This new appreciation that, you know, wouldn't it be great if everybody could go up there and have that perspective that you have? 15 seconds, if I could snap my fingers, get us all off the planet, maybe a minute, uh, our, our attitudes would change. We'd have a real appreciation of planet Earth, of our fortunate situation to be on planet Earth, especially at this time, through that, you know, billions of years of development of life on Earth. We're here at a, you know, incredible time. We're doing a podcast, you know, over all this electronic equipment and, you know, what a world we live in. We are just blessed to be in this speck of time. So I'm just imagining for you to be suspended 250 miles above the earth and relying on everything around you to live, it really must make you look down at that thin blue line and go, wow, there's amazing things happening in there. Phil, you brought up all kinds of you know, incredible things there. First of all, planet earth, you know, what a miracle. Yeah. And it sounds strange, but one of the um, insights I had going off the planet for five months, you know, at one point, and it took me a while to do this, you know, I've been on shuttle flights looking at the planet, but with five months, you have time to reflect a little bit. And, and one thing that hit me like a brick was, wow, that's a planet. You know, that's a planet. Mm. And I know we all rationally know we live on a planet, but when you're up there, you're looking at this orb and you're saying that is just like Mars or Venus or anything else. And I live on that planet. And that is life support. That's everything we're doing up here in a very crude way, you know, making the oxygen, scrubbing the carbon dioxide. It's uh, all happening down there. Nature's giving it to us. It's, it's a gift. And, and the buffering ability of the planet is incredible. And we talk about that thin blue line of atmosphere, and it is, and it does look fragile. But on the other hand, what a machine planet so, Earth is. It's so thin, though, right? We think of our atmosphere when you're on Earth and you look up, you think of this endless sky. You think of mm-hmm. endless space above us. But I hear one astronaut after another always talk about how they're taken back by how thin that line is, that yes. line of life. 
I guess the other view, that, that viewpoint you hear, but the other viewpoint is planet Earth's been maintaining that thin uh, band of life for an awful long time. And it takes all those insults that not only man is throwing at it, but the planet is throwing at it. The other insight, I guess, when you look down and you say that's a planet, is that everything stays on that planet. Yeah. So, you know, like uh, I'm involved in a lot of freshwater initiatives, trying to, you know, protect our Great Lakes and actually freshwater around the world. And you're from Michigan originally, right? I am so, from so Michigan. So you have a vested interest in Lake Michigan I and do. Lake Superior. You know, freshwater, you know, you realize uh, if you're a Martian looking at planet Earth, you realize there's something special about that blue stuff. Yeah. Because at night, that's where the lights are. Because yeah. human beings need that water and they're clustered on the coasts. Freshwater and the ability of the Earth to keep replenishing that to some degree, it's a closed ecosystem. So that water evaporates, it ends up somewhere else. And it's a closed loop ecosystem to some extent. And I don't think we appreciate that. You think of watering your lawn, you just got rid of the water forever and ever. No, you didn't. It's, it's on planet Earth still. It's going down to aquifers, eventually, you know, getting sucked back up or heading off in underground rivers to the ocean and you know, cleaned out and cleaned out and reused again, cycled and back for us. It's incredible cycles. It's incredible, almost beyond our comprehension cycles. And and maybe that is a problem. It may be beyond our comprehension to try to figure all this out. How this is all happening. Yeah. So when you throw a wrench in it, when the human being has too much of an impact, um, you know, planet earth does its best to, to adjust for that. But it's miraculous in its adjustment. I just want to say congratulations on One Strange Rock and, and your involvement. I think that series on National Geographic went a long way to giving people a new appreciation because you dug into so many interesting things that we do take for granted. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I feel like I did get out into space. Yeah, thank you. So that's what we're trying to achieve. You know, being an astronaut, I think I uh, contributed to mankind. I tried to move us forward. Uh, But back on the planet here, you know, I had an insight that Jim Lovell said, you know, the Apollo 13 guy, Jerry, you had to go share that. You had five months uh, on that Mir space station equivalent to what I had a couple days of on Apollo 13 with some tough times, some, uh, you know, life and death situations that changes your perspective. So back on the planet, uh, the ability to do a show like One Strange Rock and to, and to share some of that with my fellow Earthlings, if you will, um, you know, it's uh, it's powerful. And and it was, I, a, it was really an incredible series. And I don't know if there's plans to do another one, but uh, it would be. I mean, I feel like there are endless stories. There are endless stories, and you know, and looking as you saw around the Earth, or with the Buddhist monks, or yes. with uh, some guy in a volcano like you were. Uh, yeah. You're they're deep diving in the in the impact crater that you know wiped out the dinosaurs, and um, you know the planet's incredible. Yeah. It's just. And, that, and that's the feeling every astronaut has. You're up yeah. there saying, oh, my God, this place is incredible. Dude, you've sold me. Hard, Where can I buy hard, my ticket? Yeah, I want yeah. to go. <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to convey uh. that to people. And so with film and with great uh, you know, directors and with creative people, yeah. they're able to put that together. And that's a powerful um, almost legacy. I almost feel like that's as important to me as me going into space. You're contributing something that lasts that mankind can experience vicariously and it's just the wonderment that you have in space and that's very hard to convey to people can you imagine how many young boys and girls you've inspired to want to go into space now and i want to talk about what it was like for you as a kid Mm -hmm. when you were like maybe 14 and you're thinking wow maybe i could go to space i mean i think in all kids we all dream of 
wanting to go into space. And that was a, an early dream for you? Absolutely. But it's not just space. You try to inspire young people and old people, you know, to set goals and to look at something, you know, down the line that's hard to accomplish. Mm. You know, I, I love the John Kennedy speech. We choose to go to moon, not because it's easy, but because it we, is hard. Yeah. You know, hard. That's what you, you want to do. Work on your Boston accent. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I can fake it a little bit better. Hard. Yeah, yeah. We just got up. Yeah, it was great. What a speech! And he goes on in there to say, by by setting those type of goals, yeah. we'll bring out the best in us. And uh, you know, they're going to be hard. And he put a time frame on it. Can you imagine a politician actually cannot, saying, in this decade, yeah. we're going to do something? You know, it's. Now we just say, oh, we're going to do this. And then there's, you know, no will behind it. There's no deadlines. You got to have a deadline. You got to set a goal and you've got to work hard to get to that goal. You were asking me before I was, I was 14 years old talking about Apollo and I'm looking up at the moon and I say, man, our guys are up there. You know, I want to do that someday. And you were only 14. I was 14. And I, I went home, uh, blue collar neighborhood. Dad drove a telephone truck, said, Dad, I want to be an astronaut someday. And what'd your dad say? Their dad said, Jerry, you work hard, you study hard. In, his, in this case, this is America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, America had that opportunity uh, to do things no matter who you are. Um, and he said, if you want to be an astronaut someday, that's what you're going to be. When I give advice to young people, I, I always try to emphasize to them how important it is to remember those people, those pivotal people in your life that have helped you in your journey. So did your dad live to see you as an astronaut? Yeah, he did not. Um, he's up in the heavens and I could feel his presence up there. So yes. I think he understood it. Uh, you know, everyone in your life um, contributes in all kinds of ways. So take us, Jerry, from, from being a 14-year-old kid with dreams. Yeah. Uh, obviously had the support at home, you must have been a, a bright kid. You must have done well at school. I'm an old public school kid in Detroit, so nothing special. Nothing wrong with public um, schools. Yeah. We've um, got some good schools. Yep. Um, I ended up, uh, I looked into it, and I said, there's more people from the U.S. Naval Academy that are astronauts than anyone else. And so that's why I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. And when my dad found out that tuition was paid for, uh, you know, he because you're obligated, he liked that idea. Oh, what a great idea. <laughs> Five kids in the family. It's like, that's where you're going, Jerry. You got into that school. But that was an opportunity, and when I got there is when I started saying, okay, there's lots of potential out there, lots of possibilities. And, and at the Naval Academy, for example, do I want to go in aviation? Do I want to you know, drive nuclear ballistic missile submarines? I ended up going in the medical direction and became a Navy flight surgeon, uh, did some um, trauma surgery kind of stuff, all kinds of different things in my own life. So, no, but anyway, but the potential, you're looking out, you say there's lots of things I can yeah. do, and finally the world opens up to you, and you're not like this you're like this. So but why the medical aspect? Where, where, where did that interest come from? So after my first year there, my one eye was getting close to not 2020. And I said, if I can't fly, I got to get in a back door. Uh. And as a flight surgeon, you can still fly. And so it was a special program. They let 15 of us in. I had good grades after the first year. And they said, okay, you're now doing, an, in addition to engineering, we'll put you in bioscience. If you get into med school, we'll send you directly. Sounds to me like the lesson to be learned from your career is you've you got to kind of dodge and move with what's happening. Absolutely. Yeah. As you know, you know, I think I, when I talk to young people, my main question is, what are you going to do 10 years from now? What, if, if the world were perfect, where would you be 10 years from now? Yeah. 
And I don't just ask young people. I ask, you know, the guy sitting next to me on the airplane. It's uh, 45 in the middle of a business plan. You know, where are you 10 years from now? Mm. And you've got to at least have a vision of my life would be ideal if I'm, you know, living in this place and I'm doing this and this is my job and this is what I've already accomplished. And then along the way, you set those sub goals. And yeah. so the astronaut thing is like way out in the distance. It's a hundred yard football field and it's at the other end, uh, the goalpost down there and good luck. And you realize your odds are not great, no matter how accomplished you are. Uh, but you start setting sub goals. So I say, okay, I'm going to be an MD. I'm going to be a flight surgeon. I'm going to scuba dive. I'm going to, uh, you know, fly in jets. I'm going to get an MD. I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to get a master's. I'm going to go to school and get another master's. Um, you know, you just you sound keep... like a bit of an overachiever, my friend. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, you just not, you're not smart enough. I'll tell you what, my main thing is that I'm curious and yeah. I'm off scale, high curious. And if you've got that, and if you've got self-discipline, that's a good combination. So you, you get into uh, naval school, you, you, you go and you decide you're going to study medicine. So take us through now what happens in your career. Yeah, so there. I go directly to medical school, Navy kind of almost sabbatical, if you will. So I go to Detroit because there was a lot of trauma surgery going on in Detroit. So I got a lot of good uh, experience there. Uh, internships, uh, surgery out in San Diego, and then I go into the aerospace down Pensacola, Florida, learn how to fly, down in Corpus Christi, Texas, acrobatics, solo, go out with a squadron. I'm in the Philippines for two years. So you were able to fly? Yes. Yeah, so, so after you've gone through all that medical training, which, was you, which you did because you thought, well, maybe I won't be able to see, you end up getting to a point where you can pass. As a Navy flight surgeon, they are very well trained in all aspects of flight, and they try to get you through flight school. With a Navy squadron, they're flying in those days, the EA-6B was $120 million a shot. And so they've got a, a physician integrated into that operational squadron that is keeping an eye on the health of the people, psychological stability of the people, understanding G's, understanding pressure in the ear, for example, ear, eyes, nose, throat type problems that you would have, you know, pulling tight G's, going, you know, vertical, things like that. And you're integrated and you're trusted, basically. Mm -hmm. And so the back door, you know, I actually literally had a... Uh, uh, an office where you come in the front door, but there was a little side back door and a pilot could confidentially come in, talk to me, share any, you know, concerns. personal problems yeah. or have concerns, anything. But if he's not mentally a hundred percent into what he's doing, that task of flying a high performance aircraft, um, I'm kind of a nice out for him until his life settles down and he can focus back on flying again. Wow. I went on to study aerospace medicine and I'm actually board certified. So there actually is a specialty uh, in that, and that obviously pays off, uh, for example, looking at bone remodeling in astronauts when you're losing that, you know, I lost about 14% of my bone mass, hips, lower spine during that five-month mission. Because, atrophy. because of the lack of gravity, the, the pounding? Lack of pounding, and you're, you know, I'd get on a treadmill two one-hour periods a day, but you can't make up for 22 hours of literally, you know, floating and and to move in space you just fingertip and you're on your you're way. gone yeah how, how many hard, hard to hard to get a concept of that it is effortless after five months in space i'm a different animal and i saw the same transition take place in my cosmonaut friends at about the one month point i am so adapted to space that it's like i lived there all my life and when a shuttle comes up to take me back or a soyuz to resupply or switch out the russian crew 
Those people look like a herd of buffalo coming onto that space station. They are clumsy. They're bumping into things. They're knocking things off the wall. These are experienced astronauts, but it's day and night, the adjustment you make. And again, I saw it right around 30 days where, Phil, I'm as comfortable. I could be upside down on the ceiling talking to you, and I'm totally comfortable. You can spin me. You know, Jean-Francois Clairvois, French asked him, Jetty, can I do experiment on you? I go, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. So, you know, he's in foot loops and he's spinning me and, you know, there's 50 somersaults. There's 100 somersaults. And you still feel good, Jetty. Yeah, I'm fine. You know, I can do this all day. You know, it's incredible. They don't let so, you take alcohol up there, do they? Uh, let no. me finish this okay. last thought first. Okay. You're not going to get me in trouble. Okay. Uh, I'm just wondering why yeah. he's spinning you yeah. 50 times. No, he's spinning just to see how, you know, what yeah. I can do. And okay. I, I curl up in a ball and he shoots me down to the other end and they shoot me back and he's just you know kind of experimenting with the adaptability of a human being and we are adaptable and we can change yeah and down on the planet when i hear people saying you know we've always run our business that way i've never actually scuba dived before i can't do that i've never done this before can't change my bad personal habit it's just garbage yeah. You know, we it's a great power we have inside us. I can adapt to that. And after one month feel like I lived there all my life, you know, we can adapt to anything. We can we can change to everything. As for the alcohol, no US that I've ever seen. But when I get my Russian spacesuit up there, you know, I'm I'm undoing it came up in a resupply ship. I'm about to go do a spacewalk and as I'm unpacking everything, I find a little special medicine. And Is I'll it just vodka it by that. any chance? So it was not. They actually Did, try to they try to have a smaller package, so it's more I thought the maybe you know the Russians kind of might have like a a built-in little hip flask of vodka right uh -huh, here on the arm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they would if they could. What do they say? Nostravi. I, I what's, yeah, life and yeah and health. Okay, so. I'm interested. So officially, no drinking in space. No, no, okay. It is kind of cool, though. If you take a bottle, I won't say it's alcohol, but you take a bottle and you give it a little jerk, a little bubble comes out, and then you take some straws, and everyone floats around, and you have a communal uh, drink of whatever it is. Uh, Man, straws. I so want to go to space cool. right now. Yeah, it's Can't you just cool. take me there? Where's, where, <laughs> I wish I could, man. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a spaceship leaving today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't you don't wish you were on it? Yeah, I, you do. I'll tell you, you really do, but it's the two years of training yeah. that you're not so sure about anymore. And in oh. my case, I've got, you know, four, four kids that are now grown, but uh, for a while there, it wasn't the right occupation. But yeah, if you could just go in a day, I'd go in a day, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't way. work that yeah. way. Damn. Yeah. It's just like, you know. <laughs> you know, it's 7 million pounds of thrust. It's uh, zero to Mach 25 in about, you know, seven minutes. It's still a uh, tough task to get anything up into space. We do it and make it look kind of routine. It is not routine, and it's never going to be routine in my lifetime for sure. Jerry, can you take us from sitting, waiting, the countdown, blast off yeah getting into space can you take us yeah into that capsule first of all maybe like you going into some dangerous situations um you know my pulse is at 60 you know you're walking out there and i think every astronaut's done the same thing you say uh you make all those decisions beforehand before you get into a dangerous situation and you say is this worth my life and i say yes it is and uh am i moving mankind forward doing something that is worth my life yes i am so by the time I walk out to that launch pad, and it's a big beast out there, and you know it's a very dangerous situation, uh, there is no fear. And I have my pulses down where it belongs. 
and I'm calm and I'm methodical. Uh, you go out to the pad, you get flat on your back. It's about 2,000 switches in there, you know, lots of mistakes you can make. We say there's 2,000 mistakes if you hit the wrong switch. Guy straps you in, he departs, goes about you know, two miles away and crawls into a bunker. You know, closest human being is in a bunker two miles away. Thinking about my family, my, at that point it was my, my wife and a, a one and a half year old son. My wife was pregnant actually. So all those thoughts, very human thoughts go through your mind. About a minute ago, you get closed and lock the visor call, initiate action flow. <sighs> Hear everyone breathing around you, give each other a thumbs up, and then that countdown starts and it's the old 10, 9, 8. And yeah, you're laughing, Phil, because I'll tell you, whoever invented the countdown. I, my heart is pounding. Yeah, they had to shoot to the this. guy. You know, adrenaline's doing just fine without this 10, 9, 8. Uh, yeah. You know, and then the, the engines start, the whole thing starts swaying, uh, the bolts explode, and you leap off, and it is this low, solid rumble, and you feel, you don't, it's not speed, you feel power, just brute energy of just lurching you up off of that launch pad. And you do that uh, the first two minutes or so as you get off the pad and you start trying to stay within an envelope that is very broad, and so you're doing this. May high level winds maybe have thrown you off course and all of a sudden guidance says, I don't like where I am and it just yanks you back. So you're doing this inside that spaceship. And is everything around you just like going vibrating? Like this, low rumble, like a locomotive train feeling. Um, and then two minutes later, boom, boom, big, big explosion. Solid rocket boosters literally explode off. They separate and now it just gets to be a dragster and it is smooth. You get thrown back in your seat feels like you're on my chest, feels like someone jumps on your chest, pulling three Gs, sustain that for about the last two and a half minutes, and finally, engines cut off, the bodies fly away, your own body weight sort of flies away, you know, it is uh, 3G crush, release, and then you're just floating, and it's incredible, uh, the contrast there, overhead window, peninsula of Florida, hook of Cape Cod, you know, England about, I don't know, six minutes away, you know, Yahoo, you know, it's just this big Yahoo, you're in space. Interesting thing there, and you've probably done the same thing. Anybody in a dangerous situation and you, you know the risks, you don't have time during that um, seven and a half minutes of ascent to think about anything other than my job. Solid rocket booster separated. Good. That worked. Check this. Is this working? Is this working? Communication to the ground. You are just a, a methodical machine getting through it, and the emotions are not there, and probably the experience isn't there. The experience, the rumble, everything I told you about is in the tape recorder in the back of your brain. Wow. You know, if they ever sell space tourism, they need you to do the video. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to buy a ticket. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to underestimate how hard it is and, and all the training and everything, but just as an experience, the way you're talking about yeah. it, wow. I mean, I just... No, you can do it. Anyone can do it. Uh, the problem is, for example, my time on the Mir space station, we had, uh, you know, failing life support systems, the fire we briefly touched on, near collisions. I'll tell you, if I was up there with a space tourist, I would not be doing this interview with you no. because I would not have made it. Yeah. I was with two trained, yeah. you know, guy was a MiG fighter pilot, one of them. Yeah. Uh, the other guy was a military engineer. We've all been in tough situations. And when we had tough situations, you deal with it. we dealt with it and we stayed calm. Yeah. And it was three people and the brain power of us 
to solve the problems and look after each other and look after each other, you know, without professional people, when things are going badly, you're not going to make it. I think what I found and I think what the Russians found is you get up there, you got a common goal and you just put all the petty differences aside. And that's what they are. You know, when you look at the big picture, a bunch of petty differences, keep us separated. You put those differences aside and you get along like human beings can get along. You spend a lot of time training in Russia. Yeah, two years. That's... Two solid years. Every morning, one-on-one Russian language teacher. She spoke no English. Every afternoon, one-on-one with a rocket scientist talking in Russian. And, you know, thank goodness, universal language of engineering. Um, I would look over her shoulder as he's talking, not understanding anything he's saying. And I'd start memorizing electric circuit diagrams. And every day I'd show up early, flip that chart over, and as he's talking, I'd memorize the next system. Uh, six months, finally, language skills coming up to speed. And I worked very, very hard for that next year and a half of my life to get prepared to not be the weak link in that chain. Huh. Yeah, it's a tough, tough couple of years in Russia preparing. Matter of fact, <laughs> I'm thinking this is going to be great to go to space. I can finally relax. I've been working so hard. And then I get to space and we've got, you know, probably the most dangerous mission with more failures than any mission ever had. And so it was not a time to rest. And this yeah. was on the Mir? On the Mir space station, yes. Okay, so yeah. was it five months you had on it's the Mir? About five months and it was a tough five months. And um, again, old space station, a lot of failing systems really two or three master alarms of significance every day you know failed oxygen generator failed carbon dioxide scrubber um, those you have a couple of days to fix or to resolve uh, but then you've got fires near collisions uh, it was a um, it was a tough battle and it's a tough psychological battle trying to stay on an even keel during some really really rough times where every second of your life is occupied trying to repair leaking pipes or trying to get experiments done trying to make sure you know you're not coming back facing guys like yourself and saying you know sorry didn't get around to doing your work you spent your lifetime designing experiments that i had the privilege to execute do not want to come back and say hey sorry phil got kind of busy up there didn't get the the work done and mir space station was how big i mean how much room did you sort have? of like six or seven school bus size modules going off in all directions now having said that it sounds really good and one of them is an astrophysics module instead at this point it was just stuffed with discarded gear bags of garbage it was like kind of swimming through it reminds me of scuba diving swimming through a kelp bed where you just get tangled in all this stuff and pretty smelly kind of like grandma's basement the old cellar with a musty why was Smell. smelly? Um, discarded gear and also um, life support systems failing. And so, for example, you've got to dehumidify the air. Yeah. And it, those systems are not working correctly. The, the cooling system wasn't working. So we're like 90 plus degrees for months on end up there. Uh, hot, muggy. And so the cold hull on the dark side of the earth, the water would condense on the hull. And so we'd have free really some free-floating water, and you've got electronics. So that, that's failing, of course. Pipes are leaking antifreeze, for example. So we had a tough environment, and just trying to keep that space station alive took a lot of our time and effort. And then you're trying to get some positive science done in spite of all that. At times, I'd get some kind of, uh, it was only talking to Russian mission control, but I'd get these kind of coded messages saying, do we need to come get you? Are things to that degree? 
And I, and, and in my mind, no, I, I signed up and I knew where the end point was and I was going to do my best to get to that end point. And so, no, I never had a feeling like I, I need to get out of here. I had a feeling like I need to keep redoubling my efforts and I have to make it to that end point. And I'll tell you, uh, I stayed on a steady keel was able to work right to that end point. But if they called up and said that shuttle's going to be a month late, I had nothing left, and I would have dropped off you were, the cliff. Yeah, you were ready to go. I, I had nothing left. I gave it everything I had, and you kind of paced yourself those last 10 days. Yeah. Okay, you can do it. Because you're losing your biorhythm, for example, trying to sleep at night. You just can't sleep. It's day, night, day, night, day, night, 15 times a day. So now you're sort of sleep-deprived. Um, I saw one of my Russian crewmates in the middle of a— communication pass where you're writing down this is very critical you know write this down alpha five and you got to put it in your computer alpha five he falls asleep and just you know i grab the pad and i'm trying to record the thing down um so right, he lost his bio with them totally so people don't know when you're 200 you're 250 miles above the earth yes. you're traveling i, I believe seventeen thousand miles an hour roughly so how long is it taking for you to go one yeah, orbit? About 90 minutes. So, so 90 minutes in orbit. So every 45 minutes, you're moving from that dark side to the lighted side of the Earth. So again, day, night, oh. day, night, day, night, about 15 times a day. You see the stars rise, the stars set every 90 minutes. It's, it's incredible. So you got 90-minute days. I, I love your perspective because you absolutely accentuate what is right instead of what is wrong. You, you, uh, you accentuate what you can do as opposed to what you can't do. And I've read where you've said that <clears throat> you felt like compared to what the explorers went through on the ice, you're living yeah. in a five-star hotel. So whatever hardship you're going through up there in the Mir space right. station for five months compared to what they went, you know, like Shackleton and those guys yeah. or Scott when they were going across the ice uh, eating, eating penguin uh, meat. Penguin Living meat, inside, you know, an Oily. ice cave and, and dark you know, dark for months on end. So yeah. that's the only book I, they, they came up in a resupply ship. Uh, the flight surgeon sent me up. Wh which one? Shackleton. Yeah. The uh, endurance, the endurance. Yeah. And so I would read, I'll tell you, you're tired. People say, you know, you're reading and what did you do for fun? I was just, you know, I'm wiped out at the end of the day, but I'd read a page or two and it would put it in perspective. And I think we can all put our own lives in perspective uh, by reflecting on what other people did. So I look at Shackleton, and yeah, they're living in snow caves for months on end. I'd say, it's pretty good up here. This borscht isn't too bad after all. The jellied fish that I'm sucking out of tubes or, you know, all you know, the bathroom problems that you're having or everything else. This is still pretty sweet. And I think every human being on Earth right now, I don't care what your circumstance, you can always just think back 300 years ago yes. and realize how good we have it. Yeah. The other one, I know sometimes you ask about, you know, who you'd go with and if you could get three people on yeah. this planet. And I'll tell you, I think I'd go, it doesn't sound exciting, but I'd go with my, my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and just to spend time with them and sort of, I guess, see your own genetics as they mm. develop. If you could kind of imagine how did I come from that? And then also just what you're talking about, the era that they're in. Yeah. Uh, my old, uh, you know, grandmother was maybe 93 when I was in space and they'd interview her and she's got that good Slovenian old country accent and, oh no, Jerry, I didn't know he would ever go to space. Oh my God. I never knew a grandson of mine. You know, she's coming from a place where, you know, her dad died of tetanus in a sawmill accident and they're riding horses and they get on a ship to America and the 
grandpa dives into a boxcar in New York City, literally, as the train's moving and makes it to Chicago where an uncle is. And, you know, I mean, you, you look at these stories and you look at your own existence. Yes. And your own existence is miraculous. Jerry, let's go back to the end of your story now. Let's go back into to the capsule and, and the fire. And yeah. like I said, I'm so happy to, to have the opportunity to sit here and talk with you. Clearly, you got back down. I did. From- you know you know the end of the story. I do some speaking, corporate speaking. I, I'll tell you, I talk about the fire sometimes, and I see people on the edge of their seat biting I, their fingernails, yeah. and I'm thinking, I want to tell them, hey, I made it. Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> it's okay. You know, you know I made don't it. Worry. So, yeah, don't worry. Don't get so upset. So I, I did make it, but I'll tell you, it was by the, you know, it was the fingernail nail biter, and I was lucky to get out of it. So the, the alarms are going, the, the caution warning panels lit up like a Christmas tree, fire warning lights, smoke warning lights, low voltage lights. Look down the length of the module, that flame has got some intensity. Uh, within 30 seconds, again, can't see the five fingers in front of your face, headed for a respirator. Starting to feel as if I'm sort of had swum maybe 50 meters underwater, little fuzzy peripheral vision, needing oxygen. I locate the respirator, full rubber mask over my head. I activate the oxygen canister, uh, breathe in, and I get nothing. Uh, I check the lever again. It's set correctly. I breathe in again. Mask just collapses around my face. Got a failed respirator. Uh, yank that off my head. And I'll tell you, next... Uh, 60 seconds or so of my life is just frame by frame, split second by split second inside my head. And I think it'll be there forever, you know, feeling way, way along that bulkhead, trying to locate a second respirator that, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure was there. Knew where the first one was, not sure about the second one. And as I'm methodically moving on the wall, the brain is doing, you know, two tracks going on. And one, I'm thinking about um, people back home because we're all human. Relationships matter. And I just yell it out. I say goodbye, Catherine, to my wife. I said, uh, looks like I won't be making it back. Uh, take care of John. Take care of the baby-to-be. Uh, really sorry. You know, I love you a lot. I'll be watching all of you. Uh, and then I sort of look around. I say, wow, what a strange place to die. You know, I'm 250 miles above the earth myself. Two Russians, smoke everywhere, things floating. You know, weird place to die, Jerry. Uh, then I have sort of an acceptance of that. I say, you know, I guess this was like for all of us, just marching along, all of a sudden it's your last breath. Uh, just wish it weren't so soon in my life. Um, and next I'll tell you a really bad pain of regret. And the regret wasn't because I was leaving this world. It was because I was leaving my boy behind without letting him know what I thought about him. And I told myself, you know, you should have written something down. You should have told him. You know, why you're up here, why you're sacrificing what you're sacrificing, uh, what you hope for him in his life. You know, if nothing else, little no, dear John, love you, Dad. You know, you get that bad pain of regret. Uh, at that point, the world is really closing in, sort of whirling around, tunnelish, And um, I finally locate that respirator, yank it over my head, activate, say, God help me. I breathe in and I get oxygen and I hyperventilate for the next 30 seconds and then I scream out, we're going to get that fire out. I'm going to see my boy again. Uh, going to do everything right. Uh, we head for the fire, exhaust one fire extinguisher, exhaust a second fire extinguisher, a third fire extinguisher. Essentially uh, could not get that fire out. It had built-in oxygen, built-in fuel, a lot of intensity. All we had is a water-based fire extinguisher. When you think about a closed ecosystem, you know, just like planet Earth on a bigger scale, 
Uh, whatever we spray into the air, I'd be breathing for the next four months. So water-based, best we had, was not going to touch that flame. We changed our strategy, hosed the far bulkhead down so we didn't get secondary fires. Um, I'm in for the fourth fire extinguisher about 14 minutes into the fire, and Vasily screams out, you know, Jerry fires out. Uh, big sigh of relief, uh, but only for a second. Then the doctor in me takes over, and I say, we are still in an unbreathable atmosphere, and the only thing keeping us alive is this respirator and the oxygen that we have. Uh, so we go to a distant module, tell everyone, slow your metabolic rate, make every breath count, kind of like scuba diving where you're low on oxygen, you better you know, not move, not use muscles, do whatever you can to get as much out of that oxygen as you can. Uh, pulled out tracheostomy tubes, laryngoscope, scalpel, hold down straps, ready to intubate somebody if I have to, if they go into respiratory failure. And then we just sort of waited out. And then we spent about 24 hours treating the burns, doing blood oxygen levels, listening to the lungs, assessing the damage, getting things stable. You know, went to bed, used to sleep on a wall, Velcro around me, closed my eyes. And just like any other great adventure, when you do something tough and you're done with it, it's done. You leave it in the past, and I slept like a baby. So uh, That is a remarkable survival yeah, story. It was a heck of a, you Oof. know, very close call. Nowhere to go, by the way, because that flame is right between us and the rescue vehicle. And in my estimation, not humanly survivable flying through that fire. Uh, the blackout, lack of communications. On the other hand, with the communication, I said, you know, what are they going to do to help us? This, we're on our own here, and they can find out later what's going on. Uh, didn't have time to really talk to them. Um, but, yeah, that's yourself, two other people keeping their heads. Well, Jerry, but it is great to be back with you, Phil. I, I can't <laughs> you know, tell you. you. As you know, you have these great adventures. You don't try to get to that edge that I got to. No, I don't. But know. when you're back, it's like. Feels good. It feels good. I made it. We survived. Human beings can rise to the occasion and we can overcome anything. And you go out with some confidence that, uh, you know, you identify all the risks, you minimize them to the best of your ability. And then you just go with it. And during that fire, same thing. I think my pulse was 60 because I said, yeah, I got to stay calm. And then afterwards, you let that story rewind in your mind. And I probably get more uh, fired up recalling it than, than during the actual incident because you compartmentalize all that away. You can't have that emotion at that time. You need to be rational and you need to do everything right. Well, well on behalf of all human beings... Thank you for going into space. I appreciate that. And I don't actually, I'm not even smiling about that. Because again, I thought I'm representing mankind. That's what we do. Well, you have, there, so. you have. And so thank you for doing appreciate that. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for staying up there for five months and enduring what you went through. And, you know, I, everything that you've done and other astronauts have done and understanding what it's like for humans to be in space, it's all a stepping stone to us eventually going further and further out into space and and maybe understanding things here on the planet a little better from that different perspective. And I really would love you to tell us that moment when you got back to Earth oh. <laughs> and, and you realized... Glorious! I'm back on Earth. Here are my boys. Here's yep. my wife. I'm home. I'm safe. Fresh air. <sighs> Carefree life. People that matter. You know, people ask me, how do you top going off into space? And that's how you top it. It's relationships in your life. You know, hug my wife. She hands me my boy. My boy weighs like a ton, you know. <laughs> Tell my wife, you better stay close. I might 
forget, let him out there and drop him on his head. You, know, you see the, the headline, astronaut drops sun on head first day back. You know, it's great being back on the planet. And so when people ask me, do you get bored down here? I do not get bored, man. I just... I can uh, see it. Every moment of my life, how good it is. Well, before yeah. we started this Seize interview... the day, man, you know? Yeah, and before Seize we started this interview, you wanted to, you were, wanted to go explore. Yeah. I, I was worried you might get lost while we were setting up before you came back, but... Uh, I, yeah. I love that you have that curiosity and, and you know, <clears throat> Bucket is, it, it has the byline, ticket before you kick it. So if you were going to say anything to people watching about how to maybe improve the way they live their life, what would you say? What I like to do is a little drill. I go in a room once a week and I put a chair there and I sit down and I say, okay, uh, what did I do the last hour of my life or the last 10 minutes of my life? I break it down to that sometimes. And I say, was that time well spent? Then I live the next 10 minutes, and I reflect on it. Was that time well spent? Get a little pad of paper. Next 10 minutes. Next 10 minutes. Do it for two, three hours, half a day. And from that, you learn you're doing a lot of stuff where you're just wasting time. It's not important what you're doing. You have time for lots of things that you say I don't have time for. So I, I say examine your life now and then. Reflect back on it and make sure you're not wasting the precious moments that you have here on the planet. Well, Jerry, thank you so much. You've answered all my questions. You answered my question about what you would do if you were to take your last breath. We know what you would do there. Yes. You've answered the question about who you would take on a road trip across uh, uh, America. And I guess the, the only other question I have is, can you remember the last time you, you laughed until you cried? Yeah, that's stuff with my kids. And I can remember mountain biking up in Banff. And, and I tell my son, watch this. We can get up this hill. He goes, no, that's too steep. He was probably 13, 14 at that time. And I said, no, dad can do it. And I go up this hill and I'm going, 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 and I run out of strength, and I run out of gear, and then the only thing I saw was sky. I literally <laughs> went straight back. Uh, luckily, didn't go over the cliff, and so I'm not laughing till I cry. I'm laying there thinking, am I paralyzed, or am I okay? But my son comes up, and he just couldn't contain himself. Dad, Dad are you oh, okay? <laughs> and then whenever he tells that story, I, I go into tears. Anyway, it's, it's all with family because you share... You know, you share so much with them. And so uh, that's where you uh, belly laugh and where you have the greatest moments in your life. Jerry, thank you so thank much. You, yeah. Awesome, awesome yeah. talking to you. It's yeah. fun. And uh, I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Oh, yeah. Thank you yeah. for coming in. Thanks. Good to be on the planet with you. Thanks, yeah, Bill. absolutely. If you have a really cool story that you want to share with us, then why not share it? Maybe you'll become my next guest. Don't forget, you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com.